Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, welcome to this week's roundup. I have a bunch of news to report, some great Q&A questions, and I have my cousin Scott joining me as a guest. Scott's actually worked on the website with me since before it was even a website, since it was just a retro game idea that we'd talked about. So he's kind of been there since day one, and he's been there for the Super Nintendo focus since day one as well. So we're going to be talking mostly about that and kind of show off his rig, which really might be a help to other people who are looking to do the same things. So uh, stay tuned for that, but let's jump in the news now. To follow up on news from last week, Nintendo issued takedown notices both for the Nintendo Power magazines on archive.org and for another Metroid 2 remake. I kind of get it, I get where they're coming from, they have to protect their property, but the Nintendo Power magazines, that's eh, just kind of shitty. That's a really great piece of history that I thought would have been, you know, fun to have up there. And you could still get them, there's still torrents that have every Nintendo Power ever, but having a torrent of comic book files of Nintendo Power versus just being able to click on archive.org and read one is totally different. Um, so, I don't know, I hope someday they'll get all that stuff straightened out. Also, with another Metroid 2 remake, I kind of get that too, but all they did, they didn't say kill the website, kill the game, they basically just said you're not allowed to host something like that on US servers. So you could still host it elsewhere, um, and the creator also said that he's going to continue to do updates on it, he'll just have to find a way to post it privately. So while it's annoying, it certainly isn't the end of the game, um, and I actually played all the way through and beat it uh, in normal mode, and holy crap was it absolutely amazing. I mean, I loved the original, but I don't think I'd ever play the original again. I think I would always rather just play the remake um, in 240p on an RGB monitor. I thought it was spectacular. And for anybody that hasn't seen it yet um, or played it, uh, Second Opinion Games uploaded a video about it. It's a pretty short video, so I definitely recommend watching it because they did a really great job kind of putting the whole perspective in it. Um, comparing it to the original, and, and just really, you know, it, it helped understand why it's such an important remake and how good it actually is. So I'll leave a link to that in the description, and I definitely recommend people watch that one. ROMs for two unreleased Game Boy Advance games were just posted online. The games The Lost Phantom and Mandrake, which were sequels to the Phantom 2040 game released in the 90s. I'd never played Phantom 2040, but I always liked checking out unreleased ROMs and kind of seeing where the games were at. Apparently these were um, only released in their original language of Italian. They hadn't been ported to other languages yet. So if you speak Italian, you could play the whole game, I believe. Um, and if not, at least you'll be able to just get a sense of what it was like. I think this will be some of the perfect ways to try out my new Game Boy Advance EverDrive, if it ever shows up. An article on IGN was posted that claims the new NES Mini console will offer a pixel-perfect mode, save states, and something that they describe as a mode simulating the retro look from a CRT television, and an option to display the games in a 4 by 3 aspect ratio, which I would hope so. Um, so my interpretation of that is the pixel-perfect term is the same term Nintendo uses to describe the Game Boy Advance games that have a border on all sides. So much like in my GBA uh, on Wii review, um, the games look absolutely phenomenal. It's their, um, their native resolution integer scaled up, 
so that they fit perfectly. There's no stretched pixels, there's no weird horizontal issues when they're scaling back and forth. Um, so I hope that's what they mean here. And it would be really cool if there was a 5x mode, so you cut off a little bit of the top and bottom, but it still fills more of the screen and really gives it more of a um, what it would look like with the overscan of a real CRT. Since there's only 30 games on the console, it would be awesome if Nintendo actually went in, did a 5x scale, and then cut off the junk that was on the sides as well. But we'll see how far they actually want to go with it. The uh, mode simulating the retro look from a CRT, I would hope that means just a scan line look and not any like blurred filter or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it's if it's true, it's all promising. Um, I really think that this is going to be an awesome console for people that just want to play some of their old games on new TVs. A lot of people on the forums don't seem to be liking the idea of it, but I mean, the bottom line is it's pretty cheap. And if you really just want to play the Mario and Zelda games from NES, as long as the you know the pixel perfect thing really is an integer scale, I mean, this might actually be the best way. And I could imagine even through emulation, it's only going to be about a frame of lag, so it's about the same as your average uh, uh, frame meister. So, I guess only time will tell, but I'll definitely get one as soon as they're released. The Behar Brothers' latest box, the Garo, is now available for shipping and in stock. No more pre-orders for that. And for anybody that's unfamiliar, the Garo is the component video to either RGB or VGA converter that's made by the same guys that did the Toro and all the other awesome Dreamcast boxes. So if you were waiting for one of those to come in, now's the time to order. Sony announced that they're having a PlayStation meeting on September 7th, and it's assumed that that's where they're going to be announcing, or at least officially announcing, their 4K version of the PlayStation 4, which is not supposedly going to play games in 4K, but just actually play 4K Blu-rays. So more info on that in about a month, but I just figured I'd let everybody know to mark your calendars and keep your eyes open for anybody waiting for that. Low Budget announced that his latest version of the Super 8 Nintendo will probably be the last version made. Now, the Super 8 is a Nintendo console that I reviewed a few, I think a few years ago now on the website that's basically a brand new motherboard with brand new components that utilizes the CPU and PPU of Nintendo consoles. Um, you could just have it output uh, composite video, or you could use the NES RGB to have a full RGB kit out of it, or you could even use the um, PlayChoice 10 RGB PPUs so that you could have pretty much like a little PlayChoice 10 unit. Um, I don't know, he claims that he didn't sell very many of them. I know price was pretty high, which, you know, for something that's fully custom, I don't blame him for charging that much, but I imagine it would be a hindrance. Um, and maybe just the name low budget turned people off because they thought it was a low budget solution, but that's just his screen name. Uh, just a thought, but it's kind of sad because I feel like this filled a niche, a small niche, but an important niche. And I've actually had many emails over the years of people saying, hey, I found my old Nintendo and it's smashed. What could I do with it? And if the plastic's broken and even if the motherboard's broken, there's not much you can. And I always say, just hold on to it. You never know when you could use it. But this is literally the perfect solution. You just pop out those two chips, stick them in here. And at the very least, it outputs composite right away, or you could order the NES RGB kit, which looks like it installs pretty easily, all things considered. So um, it's kind of sad that he's not making them anymore, but for anybody that wants to, I'll leave a link to his site, uh, and you could pre-order the last version of it. 
And when I tested it, it looked great. And even in the review that I did, I didn't really concentrate much on video or audio output because it just worked perfect. It wasn't, there wasn't much to review. It worked exactly like any good quality NES RGB modded system. So I'll leave the link in the description, and uh, hopefully he'll he'll find a way to keep making these. And even if it doesn't sell that many, I really do feel like it fills that niche. But let me know what you guys think. Darksoft announced that he'll have a video of a working prototype of his Neo Geo ROM cart within two or three weeks. This is pretty cool because it's the first of its kind, and I'm really excited to try it out. So I'll make sure to post on Twitter and Facebook as soon as the video is released, and then I'll talk more about it on the news that week and, and give my impressions. So stay tuned for that. Now on to the Q&A stuff. Eric Hurley asked, What version of the PS1 console do you think would be best for use with the PSIO? I have a PAL PS1, which I modded with a one-chip to allow me to play NTSC games and burn discs, but it unfortunately doesn't have the parallel I.O. port. So, for people that aren't aware, the PSIO is basically like a ROM cart for a PlayStation. You put an SD card in it, and then you plug it into the parallel port of the PlayStation console, and then you have to make one small modification to the inside of the board, and you'll be able to play games off of the SD card. Um, it's pretty cool. I ordered one, but I don't know when it'll arrive. I still actually haven't even gotten confirmation of the order, but they charged my card. I don't know. It's a story for another time, I guess. But to answer your question, um, I actually think buying a few PlayStations would probably be the best thing to do for now. I know that sounds like a waste of money, but consoles um, kind of go through weird price revisions. So, you know, they're launched at a certain price and they get discounted. And then as newer consoles come out, the prices plummet and then they become retro and the prices go way back up again. So last year they were actually selling PlayStation 1s at certain stores around me for like 15 or $20, depending. So if it's still that cheap, I would actually buy an NTSC and a PAL and then get um, one of the extra internal chips for the PSIO. So that way you could install the internal chip in both consoles and then just move the PSIO between the two. Um, as far as if you had to pick just one, um, I would probably get the earliest revisions that have the best analog audio. Um, I think it's just the first revision, and they also have all of the outputs on them, composite video and um, stereo left-right, as well as the parallel port. The only thing I'm not sure about is switching between 50Hz and 60Hz, PAL and NTSC. I've actually never tried that at all with PlayStation consoles, so maybe other people in the comments could post their thoughts about that. But um, it might actually be better just to get one original console and, and install a Switch, uh, I just don't know how that affects the playability of the games, if it changes the, the hertz that it runs back at. Um, so if anybody in the comments could help out with that, that'd be really cool. But uh, I hope I sort of answered your question. Next, John D 759 asked, is there any recommendation on how to acquire a Sony PVM? Um, in America, Craigslist is always a good place to find them, people looking to just get rid of them. Um, eBay, you could definitely find them on eBay, but don't forget you have to pay, or you have to consider eBay fees, PayPal fees, and shipping. So if a seller is selling something for 100 bucks on Craigslist, they might have to sell it for, you know, 140 on eBay to cover all the, all the crap you have to deal with. Um, which is fair, which just kind of sucks for everybody except eBay, who's making a killing off of it. Um, but basically, you could just look around for any of the places that may have already used something like that. You know, broadcast stations, doctor's offices, hospitals, 
But keep in mind that as time goes by, more people have already thrown these out and moved on to a flat screen solution. So, um, you know, it's just getting harder and harder to find these things, but I guess just keep trying and, and cross your fingers. Emmett Turner posted to let me know that the GameCube digital audio mod I talked about last week was an old mod. Uh, and when I read his comment, I was like, yeah, who cares? It's a new guide for it. And then I realized I never said it was an old mod and a new guide. It, when I went back and watched the video, I did make it seem like it was this new thing that somebody just invented. So good catch. Sorry. Um, but yeah, it's a, a mod that's been around forever. The guide itself is new, and I still think it's a really great guide. I haven't done it myself because I'm still doing the GameCube video version of it. But thanks for pointing it out. And, uh, you know, it, always, anytime I make a mistake, it's awesome if you guys point it out, help. There was a, a few people on Twitter that usually points out mistakes or broken links for me, and I always, always appreciate it, as well as any criticism as well. So, thank you. Lou Billy asked, Where do you draw the line when it comes to modding that the console is no longer original? And he said that he's against overclocking or upscaling. I guess he likes to play them on CRTs. Um, for me, I don't really have a line, to be honest with you. Um, I've changed my opinion on plastic modding, I want to keep the, the plastic of the consoles unmodified as long as possible because you could never reverse that. Once a hole is cut, it's cut. Um, but as far as you know, modding the insides, upscaling the resolution, I think until it actually you're emulating something, then it is always original in my opinion. But uh, it's a good question and it sparks a good debate. You know, is something like the uh, Ultra HDMI, is it an original N64 now because it's giving you all this extra ability? I would say so, definitely, but it's, you know, it's a good debate. But uh, anybody that has a thought on that, go ahead and post your comments. I had a good question from Tofu Man, and I don't know if I'm going to answer this correctly. So I think uh, if anybody has an opinion on this, I'd appreciate if you guys would comment uh, and let me know. But uh, he lives in the Netherlands, which has PAL consoles, and he wants to build a game room that uh, really has the best version of each. Um, and I'm and he's trying to figure out if he buys PAL consoles or NTSC. So, um, in my opinion, if you have a decent budget, you know, you're going to allocate a little bit out of each paycheck and buy things as you go along. Um, if you don't want to mod the consoles, I would buy one of each uh, in a ROM cart for each. So, for example, if you get like a North American one-chip uh, Super Nintendo... You could just cut the tabs off uh, on the inside, and you could play both Japanese and um, all American Super Nintendo games. And then I would also look for a PAL one-chip console, where you could play all of the PAL uh, Super Nintendo games. So you really don't have to mod at all. I mean, cutting the tabs isn't modding, you just snip two little things. Uh, and then you could have the whole library, and if you get like a, an SD to SNES ROM cart, uh, you could use it on both. One ROM cart on both, just switching back and forth. But the thing that um, I'm having an issue with is what if he just wants one version of each console? Is it better to get all NTSC, which run at 60 hertz, and install a PAL switch? Um, or is there one that's better than the other? Uh, so if anybody has any comments on that, please let me know. Um, I'm really not sure, and I haven't really dug into it, because I live in the New York, New York area of the U.S., so all I've really ever been playing is NTSC games and consoles. And I know there are differences in some games between PAL and NTSC. Whether the games are better or not is up for debate. I'm just, uh, there's definitely differences. So if you want to play one version, you would need a Switch or two different consoles. So everybody let me know what you think, and um, maybe we could uh, kind of get this question solved. 
Mark Anthony McRib asked, What benefits does the Nintendo AVS have that a Kevtris HDMI Nintendo doesn't have? Um, well, without testing them, it's really hard to say, and I don't want to speculate, but just basic specs, um, the AVS outputs 720p only, whereas the Kevtris's high-defness is 480p, 720p, and then 1080p as well in both uh, 4 and 4.5x scaling. Um, the AVS has four controller inputs, whereas if you're using Kevtris's, uh, it's only going to have two controller inputs and you need a multi-tap. Although, to be honest, I can't ever remember playing more than a two-people Nintendo game, but maybe there's lots that I don't even know about. Um, and the only other advantage, really, would, or of one of the other, is um, if you buy an AVS, it's just all-in-one solution for 200 bucks. So you get um, Famicom and Nintendo, um, 720p output, and it just, you know, it works right out of the box for that. Um, in your situation, that might be better, and other people who already have a Nintendo just getting that high-def NES might be better, but up until the point where I actually do a full review, that's really all I got, is just the basic overview specs, but as soon as it comes in, expect a full video and full-page review on it, comparing it, obviously, to the high-def NES and any other solutions. Fat Nightmares had a question about the G-Comp switch, which is the component video switch made by the same guy, Super G, who does the G-SCART switch. Um, and I'll be doing a full review of the G-Comp switch soon enough. I just haven't had any spare time at all. But um, his questions actually apply to both switches. And it's, since they have automatic switching, what would happen when you power on two sources at the same time? Um, would two signals be turned on at the same time be harmful to your TV? So... Um, the uh, inputs are numbered, so if you have a console powered on and plugged into input number 3, and you powered on the console plugged into input number 1, it would switch over to input number 1. On the earlier revisions of the GSCART switch, it would occasionally cause some distortion if you had more than one console plugged in at the same time, but not always and not with all consoles, and that seems to be fixed now, um, but I'll double check on the composite video, or the component video switch. Um, but it shouldn't hurt your TV either way. It would just be basic signal interference. It's not like you're, you know, you're doubling up any of the information. But it, it should select between both automatically and clear everything up. Um, and if anybody's had any issues like this with their G-SCART switch, let me know. But uh, it's not something that I would worry about. I mean, if you could help it, don't power on more than one at the same time. But I understand a couple situations why you might not, to, uh, you might need to leave something running and switch to something else. But uh, yeah, it should be fine. XGA303 asked, did you replace the bad capacitors in your XM29 yourself? Uh, and if so, how did you determine which capacitors needed to be replaced? I did not. Um, I had the power board go bad, and when I opened it up, um, I tried testing it, but I'm not a CRT expert. I'm not really an expert in anything, to be honest with you. But um, I ended up calling an uh, NEC, and they referred me to a shop in Queens, New York, which I brought it to, and I said I suspected that there were other issues. Um, and they said they replaced uh, one or two capacitors on another board that they saw were uh, broken and leaking a little bit. So that's how you would tell. And then they replaced the power board. Um, unfortunately, that shop said they're not going to work on these monitors anymore. They said they can't get parts. And I think they just don't like working on heavy monitors, which that's a little shitty, but whatever. Um, so I'm kind of stuck, actually. And I, I'm, I found a few calibration places. Uh, at least in the New York area, that will come out and calibrate your Sony BVM and PVM and pretty much anything you have. 
but they won't do cap replacements. So I'm still, you know, feverishly looking for some place that could either do both or just one or the other. You know, if you go in and have your monitors, all your caps replaced, um, and then come in and have the calibration guy, you should be set for a long time. So even if it's kind of expensive, it seems like something that would be worth doing. So once again, if anybody knows places that could do that uh, in any area, let me know and I'll compile a list and maybe even post it on the site in the RGB monitor section. Hydrogen Jukebox asked if I would talk about the Wii a little bit. I'll give just a, a short overview, um, but if you guys want more info on it, um, I could have a guest on and we could really go into depth and, and kind of explain the, the details and um, the different revisions and what you get from each. Uh, but just as a quick rundown, there's a couple of different revisions of the Wii, and then two main versions. So that new one, the little mini one, I can't really think of any use for it, to be honest with you. Um, I, you know, it, I don't even think it outputs component video. I could be wrong about that, but, uh, you know, you can't hack it. Um, it just doesn't seem like something I would ever recommend to anybody. Um, the original Wiis, in the many different colors and revisions of each, are definitely the way to go. Um, in the, the original first couple of revisions are compatible with GameCube games without any modding. You could just stick the GameCube games in. Um, the last revisions are not, but they output better quality video. Um, depending on your display, you might not even be able to tell that it's better quality. Um, I can, but I kind of have an eye for these things for whatever crazy reason. Um, and then there is a model in the middle that outputs the good video and still plays GameCube games, but... They're kind of hard to find. I have all the info on my Wii page at all. Um, what I've been doing is I took one of the last model of the original Wiis, and then you could soft mod that, and then you could run GameCube uh, ISOs from it, so you get the high quality video, and you get um, all the different features that you would get from soft modding. Um, but soft modding is something that's kind of a pain. I also link to a step-by-step -step guide, but once you get through it, it's not just that you could play stolen illegal games. I mean, that's an advantage, and it's certainly like a ROM cart, the try-before-you-buy thing I always love. Um, the soft modding that I, I absolutely love about it is all of the emulators, the different ways to inject ROMs into virtual console games. So if you have a virtual or a game that you wanted to play um, that wasn't available on the virtual console, there's ways to inject ROMs into it. There's a huge scene behind it, and it's just, uh, if you want to get into modding, soft modding at all, um, the Wii is definitely the way to go. Uh, and, you know, with any time there's emulators, there's lag, but if you use the Wii um, with older emulators on a CRT, it's not going to be that noticeable, and you could play them in 240p in the original game's resolutions. So there's a lot of advantages. Um, Hydrogen Jukebox also asked about the Wii to HDMI adapter, um, and there's a, there's a couple of them, actually. But as far as I know, the ones that just take 480p component and transcode it to HDMI, do a perfectly fine job. Um, there might be better solutions out there, but it's uh, just, you know, it, whenever you're not changing the actual resolution of the signal and you're just transcoding analog to digital, um, you know, the, generally speaking, you'll get a decent enough picture, and it might be better for people, or, well, some TVs don't even have component inputs anymore, so you have no choice, but uh, it's a good solution. Um, you know, you could obviously go through an upscaler like a DVDO or something like that to try to get more advantages through HDMI, but it's good enough. 
Um, the bigger advantage, though, would be to never go to analog at all, to take something like the GameCube video boards and install it into a Wii so you go direct digital to digital in 480p. Um, and that's something that they're experimenting with, and it, we might see that in a year or so. Um, but for anybody that just needs uh, to put the Wii on an HDMI, those little cheap adapters aren't bad at all. Just don't get the ones that try to upscale to 720 or 1080p, because then you're just adding lag and having a cheap upscaling solution. Um, so, uh, you guys let me know if you want me to go more into depth on this. I could certainly get a guest on here and do an interview and really dig deep into the solutions and even dig way deeper into like the Wii to HDMI boxes and the advantages of each and if any add lag or anything like that. But that was just, uh, a short, well, as short as I could have made it a rundown. So let me know what you guys think. And for the last question, Borrower, I think that's how you say the name, Borrower asked, how do you keep up the site costs since you don't have donation options, no ads, or anything like that? Um, it's a question I've never really gotten before, and I've always kind of wondered when this question would come up. Because no matter what, whenever you seem to talk about money, people get, somebody gets pissed in the process. So I'm just going to be you know, blunt and honest, and hopefully I don't piss everybody off. Um, but I, at the moment, um, make money off the site by the eBay ads that are on the right-hand side. That's what makes the majority of the money. Um, but I tried really, really hard to make that a tool and not an annoyance to people. So I could have just stuck a flashy eBay ad up or done a pop-up, but I just I thought that was horrible. Um, so what I did do was something like if you're talking about modding and you need uh, the Heiko 808, as you know, you're reading on the page, you know, I recommend you know a good quality desoldering iron. Right as you look to the right, there's the desoldering iron. Or things like, you know, oh, you just get uh, an S-Video cable. So, you know, right there to the right is the link to the S-Video cable. So through the partner program, when people click on that or buy them, I get a little bit of a cut from it. Um, and also, I've been working with partner programs for certain sellers uh, through their web stores, so that if you click on my link, I get a small percentage of that. Um, if you don't count hours spent, so if you only are just talking about the books of how much money I've spent on the site for all the stuff I've had to buy to review um, versus how much I've made, it's about at break-even, um, give or take a little bit. Uh, I made a little bit of money when I was selling this, uh, the Super Nintendo N64 amp chips, but I lost a lot of money on all the other stuff that I sold because I tried to buy a lot of the prototypes to test out, tried to figure out which was the best one. So the money from the Super Nintendo N64 ones, really all of it almost went to pay for the other stuff, which I learned a tremendous amount of uh, about by doing it. And all the next stuff that people are releasing within the next few months are all really just a natural progression of that. So I don't think of it as a waste. Um, but... As far as in the future goes, um, that's really the concern that I have for it because I work from home, um, and I have you know I don't I don't know if I have full ADHD, but I definitely have concentration problems. So to roll out of bed at 6 a.m. and bounce back and forth between my day job, working on the website, or writing and recording for the band, there are many days that I, I kind of just start at 6 a.m. and 8 9 p.m. I realize holy crap the day's gone and I've been working the whole time on everything. Um, so that, uh, the job that I have, they said that probably only going to last another year. So my concern is what happens in a year from now when, if I can't get another job that allows me to work from home, or if I have a job that is, you know, way more busy and doesn't allow me to, to bounce back and forth between projects. Um, so that's the, that's the issue with the site at the moment. 
Um, I could continue to donate my hours. It's probably three or four hours a day I would put in uh, on average um, to the site. Um, I'll continue doing that as long as I can. But if I'm stuck getting a real job, a nine to five or something like that, um, I really don't know how much more I could continue to put in. The site will never go away because any of the extra money that I've made from the ads all goes to hosting costs and things like that. So the site will not go away, but um, it's probably going to need to change. So uh, I'll get into that on another podcast because I really want to try to make it something that it's a community thing. Anybody could really add a guide and contribute, and obviously there'd be moderation for all that, but um, i got to try to figure out a way for it to make more money in order to pay for all of that stuff. But that's within six months to a year. So uh, I know that was a really long description, but um, no one's ever asked the question, so I wanted to answer it directly, so nobody thought I was sitting back here rolling in the dough off the site or anything, but, uh, and I'm certainly not going broke because of it. At first, I spent, I mean, I, you know, maxed out a credit card buying everything that I would need, but it it has evened out, um, and it's paying for itself now, which is kind of the goal. I mean, it's a great thing if you have a hobby that could even itself out, so... Uh, I hope that wasn't too long a description, and I hope to give more info on how I want the site to evolve in the future. Um, But, uh, yeah, any more questions about that, please let me know. Okay, now on to the discussion with Cousin Scott. Um, I hope to have him on a lot before, to be honest with you, because he really was an integral part in this website, and, and really was, you know, without him, the website wouldn't exist. You know, he's kind of been behind the scenes helping me out since day one. Um, and to be honest, the only reason I haven't had him on a lot bef- uh, in the podcast previously is because he lives in a part of Brooklyn called Bay Ridge, which is like a black hole of travel. Um, you can't get to it directly with a subway. you got to change a bunch of subways. Uh, driving there, I mean, the traffic's always a nightmare. I mean, I'm sure if I left in the middle of the night, it would be 45 minutes from where I live. But on a Saturday afternoon, it's like two and a half hours. So I'm sure all the the Brooklynites listening to this are like, oh, screw you, Bob, it's not that bad. But it is for me. It's a journey for me when I get there. I always joke and say he lives on Mars. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's always fun to to hang out with Scott, and I I hope you guys enjoy it. And for the people that don't really care about the SNES part of it, um, we give just a quick rundown of his rig first. So that might interest you guys. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, stay tuned and give it a chance and see if you like it. And if not, let me know. I mean, uh, you know, you guys, your comments and your feedback are really what drive this podcast, so if you want to hear more or less of something, please let me know and I'll try to keep it up. Hey guys, I'm here with my cousin Scott, who's been getting in trouble with me since we were little kids. Uh, we've been gaming together since, like, what, 10 years old or something like that? Thereabouts. And he's uh, been behind the scenes helping me in the website since day one. Actually, since before it was even a website, when it was just my stupid idea to strap old video games to a rolling cart. So, a good uh, stupid idea. <laughs> But it sparked all this, so whatever. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to have him show off his current RGB cart because anybody that lives in a smaller apartment might want to follow his lead. Uh, And then we're going to talk Super Nintendo because we've kind of been playing with Super Nintendo since day one, I guess. Yeah, because it's the best. (laughs) So here you go. Hey there. So uh, now we're going to talk about my... um my retro video game uh, cabinet here, and uh, we've got a bunch of cool stuff to show you on it. Uh, let's start with the back, and uh, we'll look at just how we have the monitor hooked up, and we can talk about the model of the monitor. Our, uh, it's a Sony uh, Trinitron PBM20L5, uh, which is one of the better RGB monitors in the PBM series because it handles HDMI pretty well, up to 720p. 
Uh, you mean HDSDI. Those are HDSDI, actually, yeah, I apologize. Those are the imports, inputs right there, and you can get that HDMI converter that's zero lag for it, too. So, Which uh, is definitely in the pike for the future. Uh, for now, I just have regular um, RGBS uh, connected to it with uh, through the G-SCART switch for all of the analog video game consoles. And if we take a look at the front of it, one of the nice things about it is it spins very nicely. <laughs> is uh, one of the downsides of this console was when we got it, the uh, the buttons are supposed to light up along the side and you're supposed to be able to read it just from the lit up screen, but um, the, the light was almost completely dead on it, so it was very difficult to read. So what we did was we took a very thin uh, white paint pen and uh, we wrote all of the uh, buttons back on it and that makes it, uh, I think it came out pretty well. Yep. Up here on top, I've got my um, X-Arcade tank stick, which I use uh, with my MAME machine. Uh, this is what I play all the arcade games through. And uh, it's just a regular tank stick as far as the buttons and the sticks are concerned, and it comes with a trackball. But we've also, I've also added a uh, Turbo Twist um, spinner, which can uh, adapt with a I don't know, I think it's a six inch wheel or an eight inch wheel or something. Um, it can spin all day long. It's very cool for um, continuous spinning driving games like pole position. Uh, and you can also put a knob on it for traditional spinner games like Tempest and Arkanoid. And what's kind of cool about this spinner is that it's got this little bit of felt on the bottom of it. And what you know, it's got a set screw, like an Allen set screw, so when you place it on the stick here of the spinner, if you want to play a game like Tempest where you want it to be able to spin forever, like we just spun the wheel, you can have it sitting above and it'll just spin frictionless. And then if you want to play a game like Arkanoid, which used a geared spinner, and when you, when you, you know, take your hand off of it, it stops spinning, you can just have it sitting on the bottom with the felt, and the felt will basically stop it and give it more of an Arkanoid type feel. Very cool. And then uh, beyond that, let's take a look at... So is there, um, the reason you chose that location is because there wasn't much space inside, right? That's correct. When you break open the tank stick, which you can, you can open it up from the bottom, you can basically just take off all of these little stoppers, and there's a screw underneath each one of them, and then this bottom section comes out. Um, it's, really pretty, it's really pretty full of gizmos and uh, all the, the guts for all the buttons and everything. So there's relatively few places where you can place a wheel or a spinner. I had originally wanted to put it right here underneath the trackball, but it's not tall enough to be able to fit it because it's angled here, like the, the surface of it is angled, so it's taller in the back and shorter in the front. So we couldn't put it in the front anywhere, so it has to be along the back. And basically the only other places that aren't taken up with circuitry are the two corners. And unfortunately, if you were to put it in the corner, it gets in the way of the wheel. So really, the only place that I could find that made sense was next to the player one and player two buttons. But it really works very well, um, and uh, you can play all the uh, all the coolest <laughs> spinner games with the with this guy. Okay, so let's just talk about the components on the car itself. Uh, all the audio for the cart passes through this Bose Wave Radio, which I've had since about 1998 or so, and it's uh, been moving around with me uh, on all my adventures through life. 
Uh, right here, I've got my RGB modded Atari 2600 with classy wood paneling. <laughs> Along here on the side, I have the wonderful uh, G-SCART switch, which all of my SCART resources pass through, and it's, uh, it's a, it auto-switches, and it's really terrific. It's the perfect solution for this size uh, you know, setup. Uh, over here, I've got a PS1 is nice and classy and small. I've got an RGB modded uh, Nintendo, which has the, what's what's the name of the The, the NES RGB, the Tim Worthington board. It's terrific. It's, uh, got, it's got a stereo knob in front, right? Yeah, it's got a uh, stereo on the front. I've got a RGB modded N64. I got a Wii that I'm going to try to send into this into the near future using components which we should be able to pass through the G-SCART switch, but we haven't built the cable for it yet. This is my MAME console, which is uh, actually a modified uh, old computer that Bob used to make, which is pretty terrific. It's a nice uh, small form factor machine, and uh, it plays all the games really wonderfully. And then if we spin it around to the last side, up top I've got a Neo Geo CD, which is another underrated console, if you ask me. It's a great play way to play Windjammers. And then here on the bottom, I've got a Sega Genesis and an RGB modded SNES. So, um, other than the great, you know, old Nintendo consoles, my favorite console is the Vectrix, um, which had a fairly short life in its natural run, but. Uh, has been an act, very active on the homebrew scene for many years, and um, I've got an original controller for it, which is is terrific. It's got an analog stick over here, but it's not as in good shape as it used to be. So, uh, fantastic investment for maybe about 15 bucks or something. It's called the VEC Adapt, uh, which you can buy from the, the the person who manufactures it has a website, and um, it allows you just to plug a regular Genesis controller in. You can plug the, the big uh, three-button one in or the six-button one. I've got the six-button one because there's four buttons on the Vectrix, and the start button for the, the six-button thing lines up with here, so it's the start button, one, two, and three. And uh, it's really wonderful. And, uh, of course, why it's not very appropriate for um, RetroRGB.com is because the Vectrix is in black and white, but it works off of... Uh, a beautiful black and white Vectrix mo or a vector monitor. Um, so this is exactly like the Star Wars arcade Francisco and I saw when we went to the arcade museum a few weeks ago. It is, except that the the uh, Star Wars arcade has a color vector monitor, and the thing that I dislike about color vector monitors is it still has like a, you know, like it still has a um, like a color mask on it, so it still has kind of like a pixelated look, even though it's drawing these beautiful straight vector lines. And um, I happen to think that uh, the black and white um, vector games just are are the best looking vector games to me. Um, so I think that the the asteroids cabinet is terrific, and uh, of course the vector the Vectrix itself I think looks really kind of cool, although it's considered to be a lower quality monitor than the arcades um, for obvious reasons. I, I really think it's a terrific monitor and um, this particular unit is, you know, from the, the early 80s and has been in, you know, 
continuous use since then and uh, is uh, it still looks as good as the day that it, that it was purchased, I believe. So, um, And no matter what, there's no way I could get this video to show you guys what I'm seeing with my eyes. I mean, it's just... It, the way the vectors are drawn, it almost looks 3D without the 3D glasses. It's kind of cool. You could see the, almost feel the depth of the little spaceship and stuff. So, and it is also worth noting. I don't have it, but there is, uh, there are 3D glasses for the Vectrex, and uh, there are a handful of 3D games that uh, is the first console to have uh, 3D, and uh, it's really pretty cool. Oh, I can't wait to try those one of these days. Maybe my next purchase. So now we're just going to go through the different Super Nintendo versions uh, and then the mods that we've done to each and which one is better or might not be better or, I don't know, we're just going to talk Super Nintendo. So we'll start out with the original. And uh, you'll notice I've already pre-disassembled all these so you don't have to sit there while I unscrew screws. But uh, the original Super Nintendo console, um, if you notice this one isn't discolored, but it kind of is in the back. Uh, it's because somebody gave me one a long time ago, a broken one that I used the shell for. Um, Do you have any explanation for the discoloration, like how that happens and if it means anything? Yes, it was the manufacturing process they used in the chemicals inside the plastic, which is why the newer ones don't fade. Um, and you could use something called RetroBright, which is just basically a mixture of different solutions to kind of... You basically put it on into like a goo, and you leave it out in the sun for a day, and then it's pretty much fixed. Really? Yeah. No shit. And will it, is it, um, is it, is, is the discoloration like an indicator to you at all? Like about whether it's like a viable console for an RGB mod? Yes. So, um, if it's a yellowed console, unless somebody swapped the case, there's no way it's one of the newer chips in it. So that is a small deterrent. At least when I'm walking through the game stores, I just walk right past the yellow cartridges and not even, you know, not even bother. Or, is it specific, is that goo specifically for the SNES like discoloration? Or does it come in handy for anything else? Any uh, any plastic that's been discolored like that over the years. So I think I had an old Tandy 1000 computer that did the same thing. If I wanted to restore oh. it, that. You know, what I, my procedure is always to start with Goo Gone, that stuff. Because I've had plenty of plastics that got discolored over the years. You, uh, you put that stuff on, you kind of wait a few minutes, and then you scrub it off. And then it leaves a residue, so you have to use something else. So when I do, I actually... When I stick these in the sink to clean them, I start with Goo Gone first. Then I use dish detergent and kind of use a scrub brush to, to brush them in. And then I'll get the Goo Gone off. That, the, yeah, the dish detergent is simply to get the Goo Gone off and then for any of the, the final gunk that may be still stuck in there. Um, and then I just leave it out to dry. But as other than that, I mean, it's uh, if that doesn't work, then you have to go as far as do the retro bright stuff and make the mixture yourself. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's good to try, and if you want to preserve your consoles, I mean, I don't know how long it'll take to re-discolor after using RetroBright, but I don't think anybody's ever reported on that, so. Yeah, well, you have to wait another decade. Yeah. <laughs> um, but original Super Nintendo, this is also the one where when you um, push the power on, uh, that locks in. So it's kind of... Um, see the little thing pop out and that's why a lot of the original Super Nintendo cartridges had that divot so that when you press the power on it actually held the cartridge in place so you couldn't remove it but I think that was just breaking off so they stopped making it. But Does that interfere do, do, do later SNES games not have that divot or do they all have the divot? Um, I think they all have the divot just for compatibility but some yeah. of the ROM carts don't and the PAL cartridges don't I don't think as well as any of the Japanese ones, because they're the same shape as the PAL consoles. So, oh cool. 
Um, and for the insides, so I'll just uh, take it out. One of the one of the things about the original SNES is it's got shielding on the bottom as well. So you kind of pull that off. Um, and it usually has a sound module here, but I took that out to do some kind of mod to it. So sorry, forgot about it. But this is the inside of the original. And these are the two chips that do the video. So this is why they're called the two-chip versions. So I'm not sure how detailed you can see in the video, but uh, I'll post pictures online with close-ups of them. But that is the two-chip, and that's how you could also see the revisions of the board itself. So that's the SVSHVC CPU-01. Um, and these don't perform that well for the video. There's uh, some kind of filtering that happens between the two chips, um, and that's why you seem to have the video issues with them. Uh, there's a lot of people that have tried to clean it up. There's that one Japanese site where the guy just kind of solders piece, uh, a bunch of stuff directly to the board without making a, a circuit board and try to fix it. Um, and while it kind of worked, um, Bordy, uh, Peter Bartman, who designed uh, a couple of the amp chips, actually tested it himself. And it's just, there's still a checkerboard pattern when you do an RGB bypass. And it's just basically a lot of effort for not as much of the gain as the other ones. Um, but these are all the consoles that we probably first started with, right? Yeah, when you know when I when we first dug up my old NES SNES, uh, it did not play nice with our with the modding attempts. Uh, we had to basically find a new one to get up and running with the with the RGB mods. Yep. So does the as far as the two chip is concerned, the versus one chips, like do you know what the roles of the two chips are? Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, I forgot off the top of my head, to be honest with you, but there's been a lot of discussions on the forums. I could post links to the different forums where people have um, have kind of gone through and figured out what's what. Um, but uh, no, I don't remember off the top of my head. I just know that they separated the two uh, the um, two parts, but I think it's created in one and then goes through the other uh, to actually apply more textures. I don't know. I'm sure everyone's going to make fun of me for saying that one. Sorry, bye. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Um, but then later on, in I think 1994 or 5, they started making the one-chip models. What was the first year of the SNES? Uh, 90? 1990? Okay, so it was like the two chips was everything for the everything. first like few years, basically. Yes, everything. Okay. And the, the video was a little blurry, mm -hmm. but I mean, back then we were playing on... I mean, Watching we were, it on a blurry TV. So yeah, we were sitting did. on the floor of my grandparents' house using RF on an old crank TV where you cranked the dials. If there's anybody under 25 watching, you've probably never even seen a TV with a crank on it. But yeah, later on, they came out with a one-chip model, which um, the board doesn't have the shielding on the bottom, uh, which doesn't mean anything either way. It's just uh, something to look for. Um, and also, excuse all the extra wires on this one because I was using this for another mod. But on this one, um, you see that it actually uses only one video chip right there, the SCPUN. And then I'll take off the heat shield here. Uh, once again, please just ignore the, the wires I have sitting underneath. But the SCPUN chip right here is what actually makes the video itself. Then that those signals are run out. Um, you might not be able to see it, but they're run on these traces by my finger that go into this chip, the sRGB chip. And that's the chip that actually amplifies the video. So on these one-chip consoles, everything is much, much clearer. But um, 
it also accentuates some of the issues. So like the white line issue going down the center. You remember that when we had those? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember when I got a SNES Mini for the first time. I still have my driver's license. I think I picked you up and may have allegedly gotten this phoned. And then we went out and bought a SNES Mini. Um, and we got it home and we plugged it in and there was that white line right down the middle. And we thought it was the TV. Then we thought it was the, the actual uh, SNES console itself. So I think I brought it back and got another one. But this was a brand new console. So... The white line was apparent on all of the models of SNES. Apparent, uh, I didn't realize it though, but it's uh, most noticeable on the clearer revisions because if you know if you have a blurry image, that white yeah. line's kind of blurred. You can only see it. So the fix that people have come up with is on this DC to DC voltage regulator right here, and this is on um, almost any of the uh, the SNES revisions. If you actually just put a um, a capacitor, I think a 470 UF between it. Um, Supposedly, the video memory buffer is what's affecting it. Um, so by just adding a capacitor, it uh, that seems to clear it up for most cases. It like dims it basically, right? Like it's still always going to be there, or is it actually getting no? Rid it of cleans it, it up altogether. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, some people have reported that just adding that one capacitor doesn't help. Uh, and for the one chip models, you could add more um, to the sRGB amp as well. Um, but there's kind of an ongoing debate as to why you would need more than that one. Is it because the whole capacitors on the Super Nintendo are actually dying? Is there actually a specific reason for it? Um, but for the one-chip consoles, now all of the SNES, all of the larger SNESs, all the ones that come in this one or the, uh, the the PAL ones that are also equally as large, just output RGB with a cable. There's no, you know, there's no mods needed. There's nothing you have to do. But the thing about the one-chip consoles and about um, the minis is that um, they don't uh, output at a correct brightness level. So if you actually use an oscilloscope and you measure the RGB levels from the old ones to the new ones, um, it's not quite exact. And that's a problem that I mistook for a long time. So I would see a lot of the one-chip revisions and, and think, well, you know, why is it still kind of off? Why, you know, it's not as perfect as the mini. I still think it's it might actually a part of it be because of the brightness part. Because it's too bright, right? It, the the, the right. one chips are more bright than it's supposed to be. Right. It's that you know you you see that in effect if you've got a console with like multiple machines hooked up to it, because you don't yes. want to be like adjusting the brightness every time you sit down to a new game. You want to have one setting that, that is exactly basically right. works for everything. And for the first year that we were you know playing, basically I was always just futzing with it a little bit whenever. Yeah. Uh, I was playing the SNES until we discovered that that's what it was. And it was actually a few people on the forums that kept telling me, like, you, there's no such thing as a brighter console. They're all supposed to output at the same levels. Mm -hmm. So if we're switching between them, there's an issue. Because there were other consoles that I had brightness issues with, but it was the wrong capacitors and the cable. It was, you know, the cables weren't built right or things sure. like that. So um, I'll come back to one chips in a minute, but I want to start talking about the mini. So then we could uh, discuss the different mods for each and kind of why you would do each of them. So the SNES Mini or SNES Junior in Japan um, does not output S-Video or RGB uh, without a modification. Um, I'm assuming it's because when you sell millions of something, if you add 3 or $4 cost to each, that's 3 or $4 million at the end of the year. Um, so that's the only thing I can think of. But when you open these up, they're all pretty much the same inside in that um, they all use the same SCPUN chip that the one chips use. And they have that same 
uh, sRGB encoder. Let me just put that upside down. Sorry, guys. sRGB encoder, which is what you see the blue wires attached to. So there's a couple of ways to add RGB to these things. You could do it like on this one, where you're pulling RGBS right off that chip, and then you run it through, and you add resistors, 75 ohm resistors to the bottom, and then right to the RGB lines on the back. Um, I don't use a 75 ohm resistor on the C-Sync line, that's the one just on the bottom, um, but I, I still have to check that with an oscilloscope. Now here is the key down here. Where is it? That right there is the brightness resistors. So by taking this, the holes that we're, uh, I'm showing right now is where RGB comes directly out of the S, uh, SCPUN chip. By tying those to ground, um, I believe these are 1.2K resistors. Um, by tying these to ground, it actually lowers the brightness level to the perfect output. So this one right here is a SNES Mini that's using its own encoder, the sRGB encoder, with the brightness adjusted to output RGB, and the quality is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it is pretty much as good as you can get. Um, the problem, you know, when I say as good as you can get, assuming these things are in perfect condition. So if this was 1995 or 97, I'm sorry, 97 when these were made, if we took five of them off the assembly line and tried different things with them, um, I don't know if there would be any differences. I don't know how it would look. Um, so I'll continue on to the other option and we'll go back to the look thing and why that's relevant. So I, I got a question for you. I'm wondering if you know, know the answer yeah, to it. Yeah, so, You know, um, the traditional way to get RGB out of these things was through SCART. Do you know if in like the, you know, the mid-90s were people using SCART for RGB on like regular television sets like in Europe or something? Yes. Like, was there Was there actually a market for RGB back then? Um, yes, it's kind of like S-Video in the U.S. Uh -huh. So not everybody would have, uh, would have it, but um, but you could. Because, um, you know, I, I'm sure that I count you among people had no idea about this until no we were grown-ass men. I knew what RGB was because of uh, all the computers that used to use RGB monitors yeah. back in the day, but I had no idea what SCART was. So here's the other way to do it, and this is a little bit of a messy install because this is one of my test units, so please try not to judge the install too bad. But another way to, to get RGB is you pull the signal directly from those same three places that were shown in the last one. So you pull them from here, uh, and then you uh, still add the brightness resistors, but then you add its own separate amplifier. So this amplifier here is uh, the one that Bordy designed that I was selling on the site for a while. And that chip, that main chip that's on it, is a THS7314. And the 1.4 models are great, um, but they have a built-in low-pass filter in them that does soften the image a little bit if you look very closely to it. But on the other hand, it clears up a lot of strange issues that maybe it was because um, on people that didn't add the brightness resistors, uh, maybe it was other things involved like bad capacitors failing on the console, but that was a, that's what I recommended for a while. Uh, and this right here is just the um, digital audio mod. Excuse the glue, just to keep the wires from bouncing around. Um, so now that we've shown all of them, here's the thing. Here's the issue that I've had for all the years that the site's been and for the five or six different revisions of the SNES that I've given Scott to test for me and to look at these. Yeah, by that you mean like 12 or 13, I think. <laughs> Probably. Um, so the one chips are always going to be better than the two chip models. 
There's some people online, there was one guy that kept trying to say you shouldn't use one chips. Um, there are a few differences here and there. Um, there's maybe like seven or eight total games, I think, that have a weird issue. So there's one game that has like artifacts on the top of the screen. Um, on one chip. On one Just chip. Just because it doesn't play nice with the right. one chip, basically. And some have ghosting around some of the images. So like if you're looking at me, you'd see like an outline around my shoulder, especially on bright backgrounds. So here's where it gets weird. Um, on a lot of these one-chip consoles, on the big SNES one-chips, so I guess for the rest of this talk, let's just refer to the Mini as the Mini, and the larger console with the one-chip in it as the one-chip. They both have one-chips, so we're just calling the, the big, like the, the right. non-Mini ones and one-chip. Just to kind of make it easier to, to decipher when, for people that are watching. Um, when you're using the one-chip consoles, sometimes you get ghosting. But if you add those brightness resistors, the same exact ones that were on the other SNES Mini, so you could take a one-chip SNES and you could do nothing other than add those resistors to them. I have the guide up on the website as well. So there's no other mod at all, but do that. You get rid of a lot of the artifacts and complaints that you can have. Not all of them, but a lot of them. The ghosting goes down. Um, so it's not just a brightness thing. It actually washes out the images a little bit and causes... You know, it wouldn't cause damage to anything, but it causes artifacts. So yeah. that's why a lot of that those problems were. But I've seen a lot of one-chip consoles where I've added the brightness resistors that didn't look as good as uh, any of the minis, no matter what mod you did to it. So then that begs the question, why? Is it because there's something else going on with the one-chips? Is it just radiation off the board? Was there something run wrong on the actual board? So then I've tried a couple of bypasses that added the same chip to the one chips, and I still thought I could see a very small difference, but it's minuscule. I mean, I thought it was pretty much the same. But to make things worse, if you take a one chip console and you do a bypass, and I'm doing the stupid bunny ears because you actually pull off the uh, or lift up the pins that output on the sRGB, and then you wire them directly to the multi out. So you're removing the RGB signal from the board, then you remove the resistors at the bottom to prevent it from connecting, and you just connect those on it. You will get, in many cases, a slightly better image. So the problem that we have is we need to test the SCPUN chip, that one chip, on a bunch of different consoles. So, you know, a stack of minis, a stack of one chips, and we need to test the output directly off the chip um, in the input of the sRGB, the output of the sRGB, and then again right at the multi-out where the pins are, to see if there are different are electrical differences. And you would need an oscilloscope to do that. Um, there are three models of a one chip, the O1, the O2, and the O3. Uh, and you'd need to test a bunch of each to see electrically speaking, if there are differences, to try to trace out why to actually solve the problem. I don't own an oscilloscope, and I very badly know how to use one. I'm not really great with one. Guys like Steve from HD Retrovision, Artemio, uh, you know, these guys can do it no problem, but uh, I would need help with that, and I don't have as many SNES consoles as I would like. I only have a test bin of like 10, which, you know, Scott's laughing at me. <laughs> you only have 10 SNES. When you're trying to do research, 10 is not a lot of all. I, I, got I wonder what little us would have thought if we found out I mean, you'd probably call me an asshole. You I think I call, I do call you an asshole. You still do call me an asshole for having kids. 
So do you know? Do you know? Does it have to be like an an analog oscilloscope, or uh, could you? You know, basically, uh, you know, if you were to be able to send your analog signal into it, convert it to digital, could the same effects be achieved by like using like a software oscilloscope and a computer? I think yes. I think the only thing that matters is you can't use a multimeter because. Uh, you can't see the, the actual progression of the signal on the multimeter, whereas on an oscilloscope, okay. you could actually, even digitally, you know, you could see the whole chart of when the signals go up and down mm -hmm. and how they bounce back and forth. Um, so I know I basically just spent 15 minutes explaining different ver uh, versions and saying we don't know, but the bottom line is people still want to mod stuff now, today. Uh, so the way I've always, or the way I, I've really kind of changed my opinion on things is that for the minis, if you have the skills to solder to these tiny, tiny little pins up here, um, you can see just that one C-Sync wire alone was a pain to solder to, um, then you could actually use the stock encoder on the minis, and it comes out great as long as you add the brightness resistors. But for most beginners, and even some intermediates, that's just, I mean, you're going to ruin it. I did. I ruined it like two of these over the years just trying to get to the little hard-to-reach spots. And that's when these bypass amps really come in handy because all you're doing is just soldering this on and then you solder three wires to, to here and then add those resistors. Somebody that knows what they're doing can do this in 10 minutes. If you've never soldered anything before and you take your time, it'll take an hour or two, but you can do it and just take your time. You know, it's... If it looks like that, it's not bad. Um, all of my later uh, ones that I've done, the wires are really neatly run. There's heat shrink tubing. But this is certainly, I would not call this a bad job if you're doing this yourself. Um, the tape down there is, um, I would use heat shrink tubing on the other side of this. I really just use the tape because I know I'm probably going to change the mod three or four more times. So I just like it easier to disassemble. Um, but there's a new chip coming out. So this... Uh, this right here is the THS7314. The 7374 is coming out. And that doesn't have a built-in low-pass filter. It actually does, but um, they're, they're shipping on these boards turned off. So you get a sharper image. Um, and it might not filter out some of the artifacts, but as long as your SNES is in good condition, you probably don't need it. You don't. Um, so if you do still see things, you might need a capacitor replacement um, or even try that uh, the white line trick. Um, but that now sparks another debate. If you don't use the internal encoder that Nintendo shipped with it, are you? is it supposed to look like that? Is it better or worse? Are you changing it? Um, I sent one to Firebrand X, who did the color palettes for NES, who did um, a lot of all the uh, S, um, Frame Meister research and made those profiles. He prefers the 7374 to the stock encoder. Um, and although it's a subjective opinion, opinions like that I tend to trust because the attention to detail that guy has is more than, more than most people. And, you know, to that effect, I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I kind of approach this as a purist to start as well, uh, as far as, like, the NES mod is concerned, that, like, why on earth would I want to use, like, somebody else's color palette for, like, this enormous co like, like collection of, like, the greatest video games of all time? But, um, you know, the, the RGB mod for the NES has a switch on the back of it, and it's got, like, three modes, I think. It's got, like, the play, the, the play choice mode, right. the original stock mod, er, the stock palette, and then this customized palette. And I quickly found that I preferred the, the custom palette, and uh, that's the way I've been playing for the last year. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it is a matter of taste, but it's a legitimate one. I mean, like, it's, 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 it's serious-minded people making, like, a, you know, a confronting things that people didn't really care about as much when, it, when they were releasing these things as toys. Right. So, I mean, I, I, think it's, I think there's absolutely a universe where making, like, well-considered revisions to these boards, um, you know, can create something that, like, when it comes down to a matter of taste, like, when it's basically looking right, where making those kinds of changes is difficult. Yeah. I mean, that's my opinion. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if I have an opinion anymore on it. I, I think it's do it. I think what I would simply suggest is... If you have the ability to solder to tiny little places, just, at least for now, just do the basic, uh, the nickname used to be three-wire because you used to just solder RGB, but it's actually four because you need sync. But I would just solder the four wires, use 75-ohm resistors, and definitely, definitely use the 1.2K brightness resistors. Um, if you know what you're doing, you're good at soldering. But if not, the pre-made amp chips, they're just so easy, and it definitely isn't lowering the quality at all. Uh, at least the newer ones, the 7374. You could say maybe you might be able to argue that the 7314s would lower the quality, but I don't. I mean, it's. I have a pretty good eye for sharpness, and I, you can only see it when you zoom in 40x on the frame meister. You can't see it next to each other. But and you think it's basically because of the low pass filter? It is. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I mean, it, especially the new board that Retrofix is coming out with for the mini. You could. Uh, you just the four wires. Um, RGBS, you pull it right from the bottom of the board. You don't need to touch, you don't even need to take off the heat sink. You just use those four spots. If you use Flux, which I strongly recommend, you buy a Flux pen from Amazon for a couple bucks. You just dot and run Flux, tin the wires, then connect it. It's, I mean, it's a very, very easy install. And Retrofix has even added the pads for um, Luma and Chroma. So if you wanted to add S Video to it, you just, you still have to solder those tiny places on top. But now it's just two wires. You don't have to worry about building that circuit with the capacitor and the resistors in it or anything. It's a, a really quick thing. Are you finding that people are interested in, in S-Video mods at all? I find that most people want it done and never use it. Sure. Because they, sure. they want to know that if they ever need S-Video, it's there. Mm -hmm. um, some have a specific reason for using it, but whatever. Um, so that's definitely it for me on that. Um, for one-chip consoles, for revisions 01 and 02, I would definitely add those brightness resistors to them, and it's a completely reversible thing. So you just add the three resistors, cut the slack off when it sticks through the other side so they're not uh, shorting together. And if for whatever reason we find out in the future that that's not the best way to do it, it doesn't hurt anything, and it's 100% reversible. Mm -hmm. You just snip them, desolder them, you're done. Um, you might still want to do a bypass on it. Um, then that's where it gets technical. Do you use the onboard encoder? Do you get a 7374? If you're having bad ghosting issues, do you use one of the 7314s? Um, the 7374 filter is more powerful, and it really softens it. You could actually, in not in a good way, in my opinion. That's just an opinion. But You can see that pretty clearly on the pictures on your site. Like, there's, yeah. there's some soft ones on those ones. Like, yes. It looks, it's plain yeah. to the eye. Um, actually, on the THS7314 page on the bottom, I show about the uh, the filter difference for that for anybody that wants an example. I'll probably I'll put the links to all this in the description as well. Um, the only thing though that I still um, I still have a little leery about uh, what to recommend at least at this time, you know, August 2016, is on the one chip O3s. 
C-Sync is not run from the sRGB chip to the multi-out. So if you want RGB, you could just get a cable that uses Luma as sync, which is perfectly acceptable. The only problem you might run into is some switches don't accept Luma. You have to have a clean sync. But if you're using the G-SCART switch or anything else, you don't have to worry at all. It looks great. Once again, add the brightness resistors. Um, but a lot of people, have, including myself, have just used the one-wire jumper to re-enable C-Sync from that chip directly to it. But um, it's skipping some of the circuitry that was already there. There was already uh, pre-laid out circuitry on the one chip 01 and 02 models. So I'm not really sure what was there um, and why it was there. Steve from HD Retrovision was going to take a look at that in his spare time, but he has even less spare time than I do, so I'm not holding him to that. Um, but it, so if you're going to take the time to mod a one chip 03, I would actually use one of those retrofixes boards that has the 7374 chip because that has the full sync uh, circuit built on it. So same thing, you just get RGBS from the bottom of the board, uh, you remove the resistors, actually Bordy taught me this trick, um, instead of lifting the pins you remove the resistors before the multi-out so you now make the mod reversible, you don't have to worry about lifting pins. Um, and that way you basically do the bypass with the 7374 chip and that has the full circuit for sync and everything should be working uh, perfectly um, for now. So once we get the, the scope test done eventually, you know, maybe it will change, but at least a lot of these uh, are all of the things that I've mentioned so far are reversible. You could remove any of these. Some you might need to be soldering gun for, but, um, you know, I guess it's like anything else. I mean, you don't, you buy a TV today and then when the new model comes out with better features in three years, you, know, you can't really get pissed about it. And it's the same thing with this. And the good news is that all of these are good solutions. Either the 7314 or the 7374, both good solutions. Using the onboard encoder is good. Even using a stock one chip is fine. I do recommend the brightness resistors now after seeing them, but it's still all better than the original two chip was. And if you're one of the few people that actually has an issue with some of the differences, I just buy two at this point. You know, I mean, I know it's a lot of money, but maybe buy a mini and then also buy one of the original Stesses uh, and kind of just go from there so you can have your choice. You know? Do you have a, uh, you basically are, are pretty much, are you fully converted on the mini over the, the one chips or, uh, do you do you feel that like if you know if you're looking to make a buy on eBay, um, if there's just like a better approach to, is it just a matter of taste or do you? If do you're you looking, like to, that's a really good question actually. If you're looking to make a buy on eBay and aesthetics don't mean anything to you, I would just get the mini, um, because it's just it's easy. I mean you just get it. Um, I believe uh, one person, I think Voltar is actually making a board for the mini that makes using the RGB encoder even easier. Um, uh, you still have to solder to those really uh, really small parts on the top, the sRGB chip. Um, but just getting one of those, either way you do it, it's an easy mod. Um, you could have Retrofixes do it, you could have Voltar do it. There's a bunch of people that you could hire. Uh, Video Game Perfection in the UK does these mods too. So if you're really looking for that, um, the only thing I would avoid is pre-modded consoles on eBay. Remember a couple oh. of weeks ago on the podcast, we had that guy, I think Jordan was his name. Sorry if I got your name wrong, dude. But um, he bought something off of eBay, and it just, it looked like somebody piled components on top of each other and soldered them in. It does not, yeah. When you deal with one of these uh, these modders, um, 
can it, do you have to walk in and say like this is exactly the kind of mod I want, or do they kind of can they basically walk you through it and be like this is the standard mod that we do, and you can ask them to make any specific changes on top of that? Um, so the links on my website that point directly to theirs point to exactly what you would want. So if you go to my SNES page and you know maybe you know that you're in North Carolina, so you go to Retro Fixes because it's you know a shorter shipping. You click on that link, and it's exactly what you need. So you basically just click on it, and then you send them your mini. If you don't own one of these consoles, I would just buy an un an unmodded one from either eBay or a local store, uh, especially if there's any local retro gaming stores. Always support them, and their prices are usually good, too. You remember Chris? Yeah, they're better than eBay. So like, I would say almost yeah. all the time. He's got great prices. If anybody's in the Connecticut area, Retro Games Plus is usually really fair with this stuff. We've mm -hmm. bought a lot of crap from Absolutely. that. So, um but so yeah, I would do that just because you know what you're gonna get. You know, you get it, and especially if you use another modder. You know, I know for a fact if you send it to these guys and there's the white line, they'll just they'll probably just do it for a few bucks because you know the capacitor itself doesn't cost anything. So you'll probably just get an email like, hey, it's got the white line. You know, we'll we'll test it at it for five bucks or, or whatever it is. But and do they, do they always do like the you know, like the three wire method or do they do like do you have to buy the like the the little boards and, and and send that with your RG with your console or do they have all that stuff already for them so uh retro fixes makes the boards and does the service as well okay. and i believe you could choose whichever one you want uh but i think by default retro fixes would use the board because it is i mean it's a really non-invasive way to do it you have the boards the multi out you have the four wires in the it's bottom their, so it's just, their problem, so. yeah and if you want to remove it it's so easy to remove so it's just one of those things that you know it makes sense i believe voltar is using the srgb chip um but like i mean they're all of these methods are really close so I, I know i still am not comfortable saying one is way better than another but yeah but if they're for whatever reason you specifically wanted one or another you could definitely request it but i don't think voltar sells any of the bypass boards so if you live near him and you wanted to have him do it, you would have to buy it from one place and do it the other. He sells a bunch of stuff, just not the SNES bypass boards yet. Maybe maybe he'll be making them soon. I'm gonna try to get him on the podcast soon as well. So, okay. um, but if you really wanted the older style, so if uh, or if you live in a PAL region and want to keep it, I would just hunt down a one chip console. Um, there's tricks on the website that I'll link to that on how to find a one chip console. So it's um, uh, in PAL regions, supposedly it's easy. You can look underneath, and if it's uh, in one of the vent holes, if it doesn't have something, then it's a one chip. It's way harder in the U.S. because um, you need to find consoles that are UN3 serial numbers. So that's the first three. But just because you have a UN3 doesn't mean it's a one chip. It could be uh, a few other revisions that were still manufactured mm -hmm. in uh, 1995. Um, or you can have a case swap, like I just showed on mine. Um, I don't know if mine was a one chip or not, but it was definitely a newer SNES that I took um, the case off of because the motherboard was completely destroyed. So I, uh, if it's a case swap, then there's no way to tell. You could have a UN3 serial number and an older thing in it. Uh -huh. so, but. What do you do uh, <laughs> if you get a two chip? Do you just return it at this point? Me personally, I mean, I have that one... Um, if I were to somehow stumble across another one, either by buying it by accident or not, I would probably keep it just as another unit to test over the years. But um, as far as people at home, I mean, it's really up to you. I personally would 
wouldn't mind having more than one just because, you know, maybe someday somebody's going to find another reason why you would want a two chip instead of a one chip, or maybe there's some crazy new mod will come out. But uh, if you're really looking for the sharpest output, you really have to find a one chip or a mini, or, or the juniors from Japan. So it's same same guts. There's no junior or mini that's not going to have a one chip in it, basically. Correct. So it's a nice, easy way for you to make your choice as far as like, you no, know, you're not rolling the down, dice on right. it. You know. No searching for serial numbers, you just get the mini and you're done. So, um, Other than that, the only other SNES-related things I have to talk about are on the um, on both the Juniors and... Let's see if I can get the camera to see this. Oh, this is going to be tough. Uh, on the Juniors and on the, the full models, even the two chips, if you see uh, those tabs right there, so it's you know that one right there where my pinky is, if you want to play um, Japanese games on NTSC consoles, all you have to do is snip, uh, snip those tabs. Um, Easiest mod of them all. Yeah. I think, does any of them here have it? Yeah. So this one already is snipped. So, well, you can't really see it because it was already snipped. But, <laughs> um, but they're gone. Yeah, you can kind of see it. There you go. Sorry for the autofocus in the camera, guys, but... So that's, uh, that's like the easiest mod in the world to do. You even just take pliers and bend it to what pops out. Um, there's that digital audio mod that you can do, which I absolutely love the way it sounds. Um, Firebrand X, he loves it too. He's actually been uh, making his own game soundtracks for using the digital rips of this. Oh, really? Yeah. Pretty well, it's neat. great for that, uh, that, uh, that cart with the CD audio, right? Yes, the SD2 SNES. The only thing is... Um, the SD2 SNES with the MSU1 audio chip and the Super Game Boy can't use this because they each create their own audio and then run the audio directly to the multi-out. So if you're using an SD2 SNES um, with the MSU or a Super Game Boy, you have to use the regular. So if you're playing original cartridges, um, this sounds pretty phenomenal, though. Or any ROM, ROM that's not MSU digital audio. Um, gotcha. So, do you use the uh, digital audio on your console at home? Oh yeah, I absolutely love it. And how do you do? You send it into like a like a stereo receiver, or what do you? So I have uh, on one of my racks, which has my widescreen Sony DVM. I have two higher end speakers that actually have the spitted input right in there, so oh. it's still stereo. Um, and then for another one, I wheel the cart in my living room and kind of just stick it in front, and then I plug it into my surround sound system. And a lot of people have compatibility issues with the um, digital audio mod because it's not—it's slightly off spec. Um, but I—I I don't have any. It's uh, I, uh, I everything I've tried it on's worked. So okay. I know a few people that bought uh, the chips when I was selling them. Retrofixes is selling them now, but he uh, emailed me to say that they tried a receiver and it didn't work. But then they just went and you know used another one for a different room or something and it worked fine. So but, uh, and I'm not sure which. It's not as easy as saying all Sony receivers work or anything like that. Of course, yeah, yeah. This. So, before we wrap it up, I mean, you know, I tried not to ramble too much. I know there's so much information. It's all on the SNES version compare page as well. Um, but basically, two chips are good, but one chips are way better uh, for sharpness. Um, if you're looking to buy, you know, the, the best you could get a mini. Um, get a virgin mini that hasn't been modded and send it to one of the reputable guys to have it done uh, or, or do it yourself, follow any of the guides on the site um, and onboard RGB amp versus the external 
it's still up in the air. It's really ease of installation, I think, should decide that for you. And if you were absolutely, like, resolutely against the idea of modding at all, would it just be a one-chip is basically, like, your best course of action or your only course of action, really? Yeah. If you wanted an... Yeah. If you, basically, if you wanted no modding at all, you just wanted an original console, just buy a one-chip and know that you'll have to deal with some of the brightness issues. Yeah. Um, and just get a SCAR cable, basically, I guess, right? And that's it. Yeah, just an RGB SCAR cable. Uh, and if anybody has an oscilloscope and a bunch of SNES revisions, um, that'll really determine the difference and why why I've run into some one chips that aren't as good as the minis, and you know why each has you know what are the differences and why. I mean, I think that's the last piece of the puzzle. And uh, once we go back and do that, I mean that's that's something that should have been done first. But that's the difference between me and an electrical engineer, and that's why I'm always stuck on these projects with the EEs, because, you know, when I worked at that company, we would have never released a product if it were up to the electrical engineers, because they'd want to test it for 10 years straight. So the bottom line is people want to take these minis and use them, and that's why, kind of why we first got into this and mm -hmm. why I started the site, is we, we wanted the mini, we heard it was the best, we wanted to make it work, so I just soldered some wires together and, you know, kind of worked backwards from that. So all the electrical engineers watching, I know you're cringing when I say that, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, once we get that, then we could work backwards from it again and kind of find the perfect way to do it and then know, electrically speaking, why. Mm -hmm. But for now, I'm sure it's all going to enjoy my mini uh, with the onboard encoder. I think yours has the, uh, the 7374, the newer one. Awesome. Anything else? Uh... Not so much, except just to say, man, like, uh, I love your site, and I think you're doing great stuff. I just want to say uh, that on the air. Thanks, man. So, keep Scott's going. always been a big help with this. Well, I think that's pretty much it for this week. Please, as always, leave any comments and feedback. I mean, it really makes all the difference. Uh, if you like this, if I ramble too much, if uh, I'm too ugly to be on camera and you prefer Scott, whatever, just uh, speak up and we'll make it happen. <laughs> it wouldn't be any content on the site. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and uh, we're trying out a new drummer tonight, and we're filming this on Saturday, so everybody wish me luck. Hopefully we finally found somebody that's going to show up and play the parts right. So see you guys next week, and uh, thanks for sticking with us.